Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 371, Naked Ambition. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to John, Tyler, and Anne for signing up already. Godwin was dead, and now Harold Godwinson found himself leading the family. Befitting this new role, he was due to inherit the wealthy and politically potent earldom of Wessex, his father's earldom. And according to the Vita Edwardi, the kingdom rejoiced at Harold's impending promotion. And that's because Harold, like his father, was popular in England. Or at least we can be fairly certain that he was popular in southern England. He even had a relatively good relationship with King Edward, considering that Harold was still a Godwin. And I think that's because the House of Godwin was supremely powerful. And at this point, few could deny that. As they had just won a conflict with the crown, that everyone was being very careful to not call a civil war. But it sure looked like a civil war. I mean, the crown had thrown everything it had at the Godwins. The Northumbrians, the Mercians, the Normans, archbishops everything. And in the end, the crown still lost, and Edward was forced to reinstate Godwin's entire house and even welcome his daughter Edith back into his bedchamber. This family was so powerful that they had just finished burying Godwin himself at the resting site of the old kings of Wessex. Everybody knew the Godwin's place in England, and the Godwins at this point didn't feel any need to be subtle about it. But while the crown and Harold weren't at war, it's pretty clear that King Edward still had a lot of issues with his chief counselor and the amount of power that he was amassing. However, there's only so much the king could do about it, because at this point, Edward's grip on power was tenuous. His primary supporters in the Witan were Earl Leofrich of Mercia and Earl Seward of Northumbria. But when push came to shove, those earls had failed to keep the Godwins from returning to England. And it was becoming increasingly clear that if Edward wanted to remain king, he had to keep relations with the House of Godwin cordial. And the truth is that when Godwin died and Harold became the new head of the house, that task became more difficult. Because in addition to Harold's newly inherited earldom of Wessex, he already had something else. He had the earldom of East Anglia. Taking the helm of Wessex was the inheritance that the Godwins, and likely most of Wessex, expected. But at the same time, allowing Harold to have both earldoms would ensure that the king's dynastic rival would continue to have an outsized grip on English politics for the next generation. And this family was quite comfortable in exercising that power. So Edward needed to do something to break it or at least present enough resistance that they couldn't run roughshod over the will of the crown. And so, when Harold moved to inherit his father's position as the Earl of Wessex, the king insisted that Harold relinquish his position as the Earl of East Anglia. After all, he couldn't be the Earl of two territories, which seems like a reasonable request. But, under English law, it wasn't. 
The thing is that in the 11th century, earldoms didn't automatically revert to the king on the death of the title holder. An earldom might land in the king's lap if the previous holder was banished or had his title stripped as a punishment for some sort of crime. But that hadn't happened. Godwin had died a natural death and he was an honorable member of court. I mean, sure, Harold and his family had been banished previously, but that was in the past and it had all been forgiven. Which meant that by custom and law, if Harold needed to give up East Anglia, it shouldn't go to the king. It should go to the next in line for succession. And that person was Godwin's third son, Tostig. So while the king was requesting that Earl Harold relinquish East Anglia and return it to the crown, Harold didn't actually have to do it. However, the trouble for Harold here was that he wasn't Godwin. Wessex was apparently loyal to him, and his family was clearly politically powerful. But England hadn't yet recovered from the last devastating internal conflict, and I'm betting that Harold wasn't all that sure that, should things go badly with this king, he would be able to marshal the same degree of support and fealty that his father did. Neither King Edward nor Earl Harold could be sure who held the most power here. So consequently, they both had to try and get along. And Harold really wanted Wessex. The key to his family's power lay in Wessex. That's where their political strength and their economic influence came from. If they didn't have Wessex, they would be relegated to a minor player in English politics. They needed that earldom. Ideally, without having to raise another pirate fleet to make it happen. And so Harold paid the price. He relinquished East Anglia to the crown, and he became the Earl of Wessex. But Harold wasn't really the one who paid that price, was he? It was his brother, Godwin's third son, who got disinherited. Now, Tostig had married Judith of Flanders, the daughter of the supremely powerful Count Baldwin of Flanders and of Eleanor of Normandy, who herself was the aunt of the current Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard. And by marrying Judith, Tostig had played a pivotal role in helping his family acquire the allies and support that they needed to help them succeed in that definitely not a civil war that happened a few years ago. And so, as Tostig's older brother claimed his father's seat and became the single most powerful noble in all of England, and as he took his father's position as the king's chief counselor, Tostig was probably wondering what kind of reward he was going to get for his role in the family's ascension. And East Anglia, by custom and law, should have been his. And here it was, given away to the man that exiled them, King Edward. And then the king gave that earldom to Earl Leofrich of Mercia's son, a man named Elfgar. And Elfgar did have some experience in this position, having briefly governed East Anglia while the Godwins were exiled. But I seriously doubt that prior experience was the reason he got the gig. Instead, King Edward was probably doing two things here. One, he was strengthening his bonds with Earl Leofrich, which was necessary if he wanted to maintain any sort of hold on power. And at the same time, Edward was likely seeking to create a bulwark against the power of the Godwins, by creating a wall of territories in the Midlands that were loyal to him. Harold and the House of Godwin functionally held most of the South. 
but the Midlands would be governed by Earl Leofrich and his son. Furthermore, the lands along the Welsh border would remain under the governance of the king's allies, Earl Ralph and Earl Otta of Deerhurst. And honestly, keeping allies on the Welsh border was a wise move by King Edward, considering all the problems King Gruffith had caused for the crown during that last not-civil war. And also considering the fact that he was likely an ally of at least Swain Godwinson and possibly all the Godwins in general. I mean, who knows what that Welsh king was up to. So in addition to creating a rival power block in the Midlands, Edward was also focused on the West and creating some separation between the Godwins and Wales. He'd move quickly here in making these deals. But with them, everyone more or less got what they wanted. Everyone, except for Tostig. And Tostig was pissed. And remember this, because Tostig, it turns out, held on to grudges. And it was one of the most consequential grudges in English history. Harold probably should have considered who his brother was before he did this. Or maybe he knew exactly who his brother was, and that's why he didn't mind keeping him out of power. Who knows? But speaking of that deal, Elfgar, now Earl Elfgar of East Anglia, is tied to a story that you might already know. You see, Elfgar wasn't just the son of Earl Leofrich of Mercia. He, like many of us, also had a mother, and her name was God Gifu. Or, as history remembers her, Lady Godiva. Now, there is some amount of debate regarding her background, because God Gifu, which means God's gift, was a popular name in 11th century England. So basically, there are a whole bunch of people in the 11th century who insisted that they were God's gift. Sounds exhausting. But because of that, tracking down her background is a little bit complicated. And it's a bit like trying to find out the background of the lead singer of Soundgarden, but only knowing that his name was Chris and he lived in Seattle for a while. Good luck. But what we know is she was born into a noble family. And she might have been widowed before she married Leofrich, if she's the same god Gifu who appeared in some other earlier records. Or she might have been an entirely different god Gifu. Like I said, her background before she married Leofrich is murky. But after that marriage, things get clearer. She and Leofrich were huge patrons of the church. They made many endowments and gave large gifts to various religious orders and houses, and later writers suggest that this was largely the project of God Gifu. And sure enough, just about any time that God Gifu, or Godiva, appeared in the contemporary record, she was making it rain. Which tends to make a person pretty popular. And this popularity might be why she was the only woman to remain a major landholder by the time the Normans commissioned the Doomsday Book. Which could well mean that she was so beloved that even the Normans couldn't get away with nicking all her stuff. But a generous noblewoman who might have been widowed earlier in her life and who everyone apparently loved isn't the story that many of you probably thought of when I said Lady Godiva. My guess is that when I said Godiva... About a third of you thought about chocolates, and the rest of you thought about something else. Something sexy. Something taboo. You know what I'm talking about. That's right. Taxes. You see, when the nobility makes gifts to the church, especially gifts in the quantities that the Earl and the Lady were making, that property had to come from somewhere. 
I mean, the nobility can't just magic a bunch of land and treasure into being. Similarly, when they found new religious communities and build churches and monasteries, they typically aren't out there swinging hammers on their own. I mean, more often than not, they aren't swinging any hammers at all. They're having others do it. Others who, to put it delicately, don't really have the option to say no. And servitude, it turns out, sucks. And according to the tale, Coventry in particular was straining under Earl Leofrich's ruthless taxation and servitude demands. And Lady Godiva was a kind soul with a generous heart. And she was also one of the few people who was in a position to alleviate the suffering of her subjects. So she went to her husband, and she told him to ease off the people of Coventry. But Earl Leofridge apparently wasn't moved by the suffering of the people of Coventry. And so he said that things would stay as they were. We aren't given the specific wording of Earl Leofridge's statement. But you might recall that Leofrich was the sort of earl who ravaged his own territories when his king demanded it. So not exactly a soft-hearted kind of guy, at least as far as the common folk were concerned. And he likely took the position that if Godiva wanted to build a monastery so badly, then she'd need to get comfortable getting her hands dirty, because this was how it was getting done. But whatever Leofrich said, it didn't please Godiva. And so she asked him again, and again, and again, and again. The fact was that she was an Anglo-Saxon lady, so she didn't have the power to overrule her husband in this matter. But she did have the power to annoy the shit out of him. And so that's what she did. She begged the Earl to show mercy to their people. And she kept begging, and kept begging. And pretty soon, Earl Leofrich's home life was a disaster. This was all they were talking about anymore. And they were probably fighting all the time, and their marriage was probably right on the edge of collapse. All due to a trip to f***ing Coventry. So Leofrich snapped. And basically said, fine, fine, I'll drop the taxes on this stupid city. But only if you ride your horse through the center of the market butt-ass naked. And then he probably smiled to himself because he knew he found a way to put an end to this situation. I mean, Gagifu might be unhappy about the taxes and the work duties, but Earl Leofrich knew his wife, and he knew that there was no way that she would... What? You'll do it? And so Lady Godiva prepared for her ride, much to the shock of Leofrich, who might have been wondering where this enthusiasm for exhibitionism had been earlier in their marriage. But the truth is that Godiva was still the same person she always was. Leo Fritsch had accurately predicted his wife's discomfort. He just hadn't anticipated her resolve, nor how clever she was. Because shortly before her ride, Lady Godiva issued a proclamation to the people of Coventry ordering all the people of the city to remain inside their homes with their windows shuttered. Absolutely no looking, not even a little bit. And then on the appointed day, with everyone inside and with all the windows and doors firmly closed, Godiva went to the market, accompanied by two knights. She then stripped down, hopped on her horse, and began what is one of the most famous streaks in history.
The knights, probably a little uncomfortable at what they've been roped into, rode alongside her, presumably to ensure her safety. And everyone else stayed inside and didn't look. Well, everyone, except for a tailor named Tom, who apparently really liked to watch, and who is now known forevermore as Peeping Tom. Yeah, that's where the term comes from. Later legends say that he was blinded for his disobedience. And no, that isn't the origin of the phrase, stop doing that or you'll go blind. But once the ride was done, Leo Fritsch followed through on his end of the deal, and he eased up on the taxes, and everyone was happy. Everyone, except probably Leo Fritsch. It's a fun story, and people have been telling it, and including their own spins, since the 13th century, when this tale first appeared in the Flores Historiarum. Godiva has stripped down for the people of Coventry for all kinds of reasons. Taxes, servitude, horse taxes. She's done it in all kinds of ways for all kinds of stuff. And unfortunately, as fun as this tale is, modern historians are relatively certain that it's nothing more than fanfic. And like any good fanfic, it has tie-ins to canon. For example... Godiva and Leofrich did found a Benedictine monastery at Coventry in 1043. But there's absolutely no contemporary record regarding anything resembling the legend of Godiva's ride. And centuries would pass before anything in the record would appear. So, unfortunately, Lady Godiva probably wasn't a sky-clad badass who was willing to risk the world's worst saddle rash for the good of the people, like some kind of kinky Robin Hood. Instead, it's just a story. Now, there are some historians who think that this might link to earlier stories of fertility festivals, the sort of story or ritual that gets cleansed through saints and monasteries until you end up with a tale of a virtuous noble rather than the goddess of baby-making. And maybe that's the case, but ultimately, we'll probably never know the true origin of the Lady Godiva story or why it popped up. But I think it's pretty clear why it's such an enduring myth. It's a story that is simultaneously transgressive and pure, base and noble, garbage husbands and brilliant wives. It even has a humble tailor like Garrick. It's a genuinely great story, but I think that's all it is. But anyway, that was Earl Elfgar's mum. Meanwhile, Scotland was dealing with its own mess. Do you remember Scotland? I know it's been a while since we've talked about it, but there's like a whole kingdom up there. It's wild, I know. And ruling over them at this point in history was one of their most well-known kings, Macbeth. Well, ruling over them might be a bit of a stretch. Macbeth, who rose to power on a tide of blood, was quickly discovering that people tend to resent it when folks behave like Disney villains. That whole business where he spent years trying to murder the sons of King Duncan wasn't a good look. And the only thing that was making it worse was that he kept failing at it. And now, one of those sons, Malcolm Canmore, or Malcolm Bighead, had made friends with Earl Seward of Northumbria, and even King Edward of England. The 1050s were nothing but problems for old Macbeth. And at around this point, Macduff enters our story. And here's the thing about Macduff. He was great. Everyone loved Macduff. 
He was loyal. He was trustworthy. He was fun to be around. If you were in Scotland, you were probably on Team Macduff. Unless, of course, you were Macbeth. Because Macduff was not a Macbeth fan. In fact, as far as Macduff was concerned, things in Scotland had been going off the rails, and that was entirely because the wrong man was sitting on the throne. Scotland should have gone to King Duncan's eldest son, Malcolm Bighead, not the shady Macbeth fella who'd risen in prominence after barbecuing his own cousin and then marrying his wife. And the truth was that Macduff wasn't just mildly discontent. He was the head of a faction that was actively working to bring down Macbeth and install Malcolm on the throne. And while Macduff was trying to keep his dislike of Macbeth under wraps, there was really only so much he could do especially when dealing with Macbeth. I mean, if you wanted to create someone who is hyper-vigilant for any sort of threat against him, or even just mild dislike, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better upbringing than Macbeth's. So of course Macbeth noticed that Macduff was maneuvering against him from the shadows. And of course Macbeth responded. I mean, Macbeth had many qualities that made him effective in 11th century Scottish politics but Chill wasn't one of them. So rather than holding his cards close and pretending not to notice what this minor lord from Fife was up to, and rather than maneuvering against Macduff from the shadows, instead, Macbeth, Macbethed. Any time that he and Macduff were at an event together, the Scottish king would start publicly calling the popular lord out on everything just castigating Macduff for anything and everything anytime he had the opportunity. And at one point, Macbeth even made some demands of Macduff and then added that if he didn't do as ordered, he'd put Macduff's neck under a yoke, like an ox. Now, Macduff, having a much better sense of what power really looks like, didn't escalate here. He didn't rise to the bait. But he didn't bend to the king's demands either which meant that now King Macbeth had to either follow through with his demands and humiliate one of the most popular lords in Scotland, or he'd have to publicly back down. Macbeth seethed at the bind that he'd been put in. But then he finally spoke up and told Macduff that he needn't worry here. He would make good on his promise before long. Macduff who might have been expecting the king to back down, suddenly realized that Macbeth's rage was now outweighing his good sense. And he very well might put a yoke on one of Scotland's most popular nobles. And while that wouldn't be good for Macbeth politically, the fact was, at the end of the day, it still would be Macduff who'd be wearing the damn yoke. And that was if he was lucky. Macbeth might just have him straight up murdered. So Macduff cheerily changed the subject to something that he hoped would soothe the enraged king. And then he quietly made his way to the exit the first chance he got. And then he rode quickly to his ships. This had gone far enough. This Macbeth guy was nuts. It was time. They needed Malcolm Bighead. And so Macduff set sail for England. And when Macbeth heard of Macduff's escape, he went apeshit. The king called up his armies and he besieged Macduff's lands and castles. He seized everything that Macduff owned and cherished. 
all of Macduff's lands were transferred directly to the king, and all of his possessions were added to the king's treasury. Macbeth's wrath was on full display. And while I'm sure that the plan here was to scare Macduff's fellow conspirators into submission, the problem was that Macduff was popular. And it wasn't just his fellow conspirators who saw this behavior. Everyone did. Macbeth, who had been ruining parties with his messy beef with Macduff, was now out there taking all of his things because Macduff wouldn't, like, wear a yoke or something. Not a good look. And we're told that Macbeth's wrath caused, quote, a great murmuring through the whole kingdom, and especially among the nobles, end quote. Everyone probably realized that they could be next here. Meanwhile, Macduff was staying focused on the business at hand, namely getting rid of this nutcase. We're told that he and his ships landed at a place called Ravensor, which might have been at the mouth of the Humber. And after he landed, he rushed to meet with Malcolm Bighead, where he pled for the prince to return and claim the throne of Scotland. The exiled prince and the exiled noble went round and round on this issue. And you can understand why. Medieval politics was brutal, deadly, and full of duplicitous nobles who were looking to turn your misfortune into their gain. And Scotland had taken this style of politics and turned it into an art form. Pretty much the only place in the Isles that had a worse reputation for interdynastic warfare and murder was Northumbria. And, well, that was where Bighead and Macduff were meeting. Furthermore, it's not like being king of the Scots was all that great of a job. That throne had a nasty habit of dramatically shortening a person's life. So we can sympathize with Malcolm being a bit skeptical when Macduff arrived asking for the exiled prince to return to Scotland and take the fight to Macbeth. But then again, this was Macduff, a guy with a stellar reputation and someone who was just an all-around great guy. This was also the 11th century. This whole show was running on honor culture. And try as you might, you can't outrun the culture you were born into. Eventually, it'll get you. And so, after much discussion, Malcolm finally relented and agreed with Macduff. It was his duty to return to Scotland and save his people from Macbeth. But taking down the King of the Scots would require more than just a prince and a noble from Fife with a gift of the gab. They'd need supporters, and a lot of them. So Macduff boarded his ship and stealthily made his way back to Scotland for the express purpose of gathering forces to support the prince's return. And Malcolm dragged that big head of his down to the court of King Edward of England and sought his aid. Now, Earl Seward of Northumbria had been urging King Edward to take an interest in Scotland for quite a while. And Edward had been receptive to this message. And considering that right now Edward needed all the allies he could get, my guess is that he was even more eager than he usually was to support the claims of this Scottish prince and his Northumbrian benefactor. So we're told that Edward agreed to provide Malcolm with support. Though in the end, something must not have sat well with the Scottish prince. Perhaps he didn't trust the eagerness of King Edward and didn't want to find himself indebted. I don't know, because all we're told is that in the end, Malcolm only accepted the support of Earl Seward and his Northumbrian forces. 
and with that, the scene was set for the return of the king. And it's a compelling story, right? I mean, this sounds pretty amazing, and it gives you a sense of a king consumed by tyrannical paranoia. It all feels deeply Macbeth, and it's clearly something that Shakespeare drew from. There's just one small problem. This entire tale comes from John of Forden, and John of Forden stands alone. No one else wrote about this happening. None of the English sources, none of the contemporary Scottish sources, not the Irish. Only John, writing centuries later, gives us this story. That's it. Now, Macduff might have existed, as there are indications that the sons of Duff and their descendants did have power in Fife. And we do know that the King of England was beginning to take an interest in Scottish affairs. And Big Head was on the run. And we know that he had a relationship with Earl Seward. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Malcolm might have been in Northumbria at the time. But there's a lot in that story that has no contemporary support. So we can't simply know how much of this story is factual and how much, like the yoke stuff, was mythological. Luckily, though, we do have other accounts that tell us things that give us an indication that at least some of this story was based on real events. Because we're told that in 1054, Earl Seward invaded Scotland. And it appears that he had King Edward's permission to do so. Now, the Anglo-Norman chronicler Gaimar claims that Macbeth had broken a treaty with Seward, and thus that was what provoked the attack but we aren't told what the treaty was about. And if Gaimar was correct, perhaps there was some sort of treaty or agreement that was struck after the previous invasion of 1046, which Seward then believed Macbeth was in breach of. Or maybe it was all pretense. Or maybe Gaimar was just wrong on the matter. It really is hard to say. But regardless, Earl Seward of Northumbria did land in Scotland. And we're told that his forces consisted of, quote, an army of cavalry and a powerful fleet, end quote, which he used in a multi-front attack by both land and sea. Presumably, the fleet was there to make sure the supply lines remained open as an army marches on its stomach. But here's where the story gets more interesting, because according to Andrew of Wintoon, Malcolm Bighead was with him. Quote, then with them from Northumberland, this Malcolm entered Scotland and passed over forth, down straight to Tay, up that water the highway, then to Burnham to gather whole. There they bade and took counsel, end quote. There's no mention there of Macduff or any of the other epic messiness that John of Fording told us about. But these stories do give us the sense that there were some elements of truth to that story. And also, these accounts are kind of awesome because not only do we have a description of their forces, we also have a clear description of their route. So regardless of whether or not this fight began with a Scottish noble refusing to pretend to be an ox, this fight likely happened. And as they press northward, Macbeth appears to have carried out a guerrilla war against the invading army. Which, yeah, obvs. Macbeth was a mayor of Murray, so he was familiar with the tactics that made Murray such a dangerous region for invading armies. He was also familiar with the lands of Scotland, something that most of Malcolm's English companions were not. 
Guerrilla War was the most effective and safest choice for Macbeth and his soldiers. And the English hated it. They hated it so much, in fact, that even the chroniclers complained about it, saying that the Scottish were, quote, an uncertain race of men and fickle, and one which trusts rather in woods than on the plain, and more in flight than in manly courage and battle, end quote. You mad chroniclers? You sound mad. And what they're telling us is that anywhere that Malcolm, Earl Seward, and their forces went, they were at risk of an ambush or worse. So what they were dealing with here was an exhausting and harrowing march north. But eventually, they made it as far as Dundee, where Seward met up with his supporting fleet. Now, why go so far north? Why travel so deep into Scottish territory and so far from your own lands? Well, the thought is that in the face of the guerrilla campaign that Macbeth was waging, it had become clear that the wily Scottish king was denying them an open battle where they actually would have had a chance at victory. And with every day that passed, more of their strength was being sapped by the relentless ambushes and hit and run strikes. So Seward decided to force Macbeth to meet him out in the open by striking directly at Macbeth's power center. By occupying Dundee and the surrounding areas, Macbeth either had to abandon those lands or he would have to fight the Northumbrians on their own terms. It was a risky plan because it required the invading forces to go deep into Scottish territory, far from their own support, and it also brought them perilously close to Murray, the heart of Macbeth's support. Seward was doing an all-or-nothing gambit here, and it appears to have paid off, because on the Festival of the Seven Sleepers, July 27th of 1054, Macbeth gathered his soldiers into a single army, and he marched out to face Seward and Malcolm. Now, interestingly, Forden doesn't mention the Battle of the Seven Sleepers at all. Instead, he says that Malcolm was still in English territory when he heard of the civil war that had sprung up between Macbeth and Macduff. And Seward wasn't mentioned at all in the fighting either, which doesn't match with the contemporary records at all. So while some of these events do line up with Forden, it isn't perfect. And as such, we can't know for sure if Macduff played any role whatsoever in these events. But whether or not Macduff was there, this battle between Macbeth and Seward definitely happened. Unfortunately, we don't know where it happened. Some claim that it was at Macbeth's fortress at Dunsinane, but the evidence for that is spurious at best. And ultimately, we don't know where this clash of forces took place nor the specifics of the fighting. But what we do know is that it was bloody and brutal. Contemporary records indicate that the losses were great on both sides, with one account saying, quote, a battle between the men of Scotland and the Saxons in which fell 3,000 of the Scots and 1,500 of the Saxons, including Dolphin, son of Fintar, end quote. We're also told that Macbeth's Norman allied nobles were killed in the fighting. Now, Dolphin might have been a relative of Crinan, since that name does show up in their family records. So we're talking about really high-born, royal dynastic nobles getting killed here. And the Chronicle echoes this, telling us that the fighting took the lives of, quote, the noblest in the land, end quote. 
and speaks of the death of large numbers of Huskarls, of Seward's nephew, and even of the death of Seward's son, Osborne. It was a vicious fight, and in the end, Macbeth was forced to withdraw. Seward and Malcolm forced Macbeth to fight them in the field, and they had won. And according to the Chronicle of Melrose, Earl Seward immediately installed Malcolm on the Scottish throne. However, if you think Malcolm could rest easy, think again. I mean, the Battle of the Seven Sleepers was a success, but only mostly. Macbeth survived, and he was able to withdraw. And as you know, Macbeth was a native of Murray, and he almost certainly was hiding in the Highlands, a place that had already killed numerous members of Big Head's family, including his own father. And the reality is that even if the Chronicle was right and Seward placed Big Head on the throne, he wasn't truly the King of Scotland so long as Macbeth was out there. Macbeth had to be dealt with, but it wasn't exactly a simple thing to go up to Murray and kill a Mormare. So while the Seven Sleepers was a victory, it was a costly victory. And in the end, Seward probably only installed Malcolm as the King of Strathclyde and Lothian, not the King of Scotland. And this wasn't the end of Macbeth's reign. He was still out there, and he still held the title of king. And right now, he was likely regrouping in the north and patiently waiting for an attempt by Malcolm to take the highlands. So if the Chronicle of Melrose had the right of it, and Malcolm really was installed by Seward, they hadn't truly deposed Macbeth. Instead, they'd just established a rival power block, which meant the fight wasn't over yet. And I wonder if the plan was to press on and finish it. You know, once the coronation was over. I have to imagine that was at least considered. I mean, they had Macbeth on the run, after all. However, it was at around this point that Earl Seward got word from Northumbria. The region had exploded into an uprising in his absence. Which, you know, shocker, right? Northumbria. It turns out that famously rebellious territories aren't too thrilled when their family members are conscripted to fight a savage Pyrrhic war that was beyond their borders and for causes that really had nothing to do with them. And so Seward, as well as his troops, were needed back at home to reestablish control. So, comfortable in the knowledge that Malcolm now had a foothold and Macbeth's position was weakening, Seward took his men and he returned to Northumbria. And that journey home was probably a bit of a relief for the Earl. That campaign and the casualties they'd suffered had been horrifying. And Seward losing his son was such a significant loss that Shakespeare even included it in his play, Macbeth. Losing a child is terrible under any circumstances. But for Seward, this was also a political disaster. He only had one other son, Waltheof. And he was still quite young, far too young to rule, which meant that if Seward died any time in the near future, Northumbria would pass to someone else, someone outside of his family, someone who might not think all that fondly on a dynasty that had so eagerly supported King Edward against the House of Godwin. Meanwhile, in Winchester, Earl Harold probably couldn't believe his luck. 
That whole business with East Anglia had been difficult, and was definitely making family dinners with Tostig awkward. But the house of Leofrich wasn't what it once was. These days, Leofrich was building churches, or allegedly, organizing tax-based exhibitionism. Hardly the bulwark against Wessex that Edward had been hoping for. And as for the king's other ally, Seward, well, he was dealing with a rebellion and he lost a good portion of his own loyal soldiers. So not exactly the militaristic safeguard that he'd been for the king in years past. And if the old Earl kicked it before his son came of age, well, suddenly Northumbria would be available. And that might solve Harold's Tostig problem. So Harold Godwinson had his fingers crossed. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join any of our communities. The Reddit community is quite active these days. And you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.